0: A question How many American weapons can be put into a tinderbox? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive.
1: Check for pulse, stand clear, push to shock.
0: America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second.
1: There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much.
2: I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Oh,
1: tell me do don't, matter, yeah. oh, don't you hear me cry.
0: Ooh. One could argue that the real strength and long-term power of the United States has always been our role as beacon of freedom for the oppressed people of the world and our great culture, our immensely popular music, our Hollywood movies, and that we beat fascism in World War II. That traditional attraction has been overwhelmed in recent times by America's reputation as arms supplier to the world. And today, we're not exactly endearing ourselves to the people at effect of those weapons systems. How that will affect the future actual strength and power of the United States is dubious. To put it mildly, while powerful regimes in places like the Middle East know they can depend on a supply of ever more deadly weapon systems, the people of those countries, and the world in general, are all too aware of who makes and profits from those ever more efficiently delivered death and destruction machines. Before he assumed the office of president, Donald Trump claimed to be, Master of the Art of the Deal. As evidenced by his recent high-profile alleged deal between Israel's Netanyahu and the United Arab Emirates, when it comes to great deals for what Eisenhower first called the military-industrial complex, Donald Trump is very good for their bottom lines, if not necessarily so beneficial for the people on the ground in the Middle East. Or America's long-term security, and standing in the world, perhaps. Our guest today is one who knows his stuff, Pentagon Specialist William D. Hartung, Director of Arms and Security Program at the Center for International Policy. He is co-author of the East Arms Bazaar, Top Arms Suppliers to the Middle East and North Africa, 2015-2019, to 2019. And as a regular on Tom Dispatch, his new article is U.S. of Arms, The Art of the Weapons Deal in the Age of Trump. Thank you so much for being back with us again, Bill Hartung. Yes, thanks so much for having me. Well, as he writes, from Yemen to Libya to Egypt, sales by this country and its allies are playing a significant role in fueling some of the world's most devastating conflicts. On this show today, we'll look into what those conflicts are, how they are affecting prospects for real peace, just who is profiting from the bloodshed and destruction and death. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Bill. Let's start out by what's been called the normalization of relations between the United Arab Emirates, UAE, and Israel that Trump very publicly helped to broker. My understanding is that there wasn't a conflict between the two to begin with. So two questions. What is this normalization, really? And what does it indicate with regard to trends in American arms exports? Your thoughts.
2: Well, I think the first thing is Trump clearly wants to capitalize on it politically, which, of course, is his main reason for doing pretty much anything. Um, And he's even had his course Talked about how he deserves the Nobel Peace Prize for right. his role in this, which is of course laughable. Um, but you know the the underlying kind of lubricant or uh, you know driver of it is uh, prospect of major arms sales. So the UAE wants F 35s the most advanced U.S. Uh, aircraft, which they haven't been able to get so far. They want large armed drones. Uh, they basically want equipment that the United States up until now has been reluctant to give them because of concerns about whether it will give them an, an edge over Israel. So this kind of removes that impediment to some degree. And in the meantime, Netanyahu said, well, if they're going to get that stuff, give me another $8 billion in weaponry, ideally, from his point of view, paid for with uh, USAID money. So he would want a second squadron of F-35s, which they're already getting one. He would want to attack helicopters. We want all manner of new weapons for the Israeli arsenal. So basically, both sides would get U.S. arms and U.S. companies would laugh all the way to the bank.
0: And any idea how much money is involved in these things uh, between uh, Israel and the UAE?
2: You know, the Israel says they want $8 billion worth. It could well be more than that if they actually buy, uh, you know, a couple dozen F-35s. Uh, the UAE, its purchases could run... Ten billion or more, and you know the pricing of these things is somewhat flexible, depending on how much support, how many bombs come with the aircraft, and so forth. But uh, it'll be mm. there'll be a good twenty billion dollars on the table, I would think.
0: And probably not everybody knows what an F thirty five is. I don't think there are any of them driving around this town. What is an F thirty five? Well, it's the latest
2: U.S. combat aircraft. And it's supposed to be able to do aerial dogfights with other fighter planes, bomb targets on the ground, supply air support for um, you know U.S. troops. And it doesn't do any of those things particularly well, which is one of the ironic parts of this whole thing. But nonetheless, it's it's the top of the line, and therefore there's prestige value in getting it.
0: Ah, the, the F-35s are highly prestigious and... How much do they cost each? I kind of forget. I haven't been in the market for one. Uh,
2: well, probably at, at a minimum, $130 million a copy. Ah. Um, sometimes they charge foreign buyers more than that. Um, so it's a serious chunk of change, even by standards of the Pentagon or a major <laughs> weapons contractor.
0: Uh, and Donald Trump is, as we know never been particularly shy he's always been about grabbing center stage and being in the spotlight ratings branding he's generally frankly very very good at that what was he trying to achieve for himself with this israel uae deal how was he trying to brand himself and how well do you think it succeeded domestically and and politically
2: Well, I think he's desperate because part of him realizes he's behind Joe Biden, uh, even despite his delusional, self-delusional aspects. And so he's decided one element of his rebranding is Donald Trump, the peacemaker. He's promised to get Uh troops out of Afghanistan by Christmas. He's uh, brokered this UAE-Israel deal. Also, Bahrain is going to recognize Israel. Uh, They can't get an actual Middle East peace agreement that would help the Palestinians. Right. So this is kind of a pale reflection of that. Um, but he wants to kind of people to forget that he stepped up drone strikes. He hasn't ended any of the wars. He's been in many ways more aggressive uh, than Obama was, who was unfortunately no peacemaker himself. Yes. Um, so it's a lot of it is that kind of, you know, I'm the guy who's going to make the world safer by bringing peace. And I'm the only one who can do it uh-huh. because I'm the master. I'm the master dealmaker. Um, and, you know, I have such a tight relationship with Israel. This is going to help throughout the region. And, of course, he's taken care of the Gulf states with all manner of uh, weapons sales.
0: Uh, yeah, Gulf states, they have such uh, enthusiasm among, among their populace for their rule. We'll get to that as we go on. And and you say that, you know, Trump has a, quote, penchant for exploiting foreign and military policy for his own domestic gain i'm not sure you know how unique among presidents that is i mean a lot of people miss the obama presidency despite him i mean he received the nobel peace prize as did henry kissinger who i think really degraded the prize in general but obama obviously was no peace dove his foreign policy was not front and center but as you say donald trump is far from the first president to push tens of billions of dollars of arms to the Middle East, so how how unique among presidents is this this Trump thing, or is it just another in a long line? How how unique is it?
2: Well, there's always been a a push by presidents to sell arms, and to some degree to get benefits in terms of uh, actions by allies, and certainly uh, there's been some stress on the jobs in the United States. Um, But for the most part, it's been at a little lower level. You know, Donald Trump is shouting it from the rooftops and even, you know, cases where Obama did restrain sales because of human rights concerns to Bahrain. He suspended a bomb sale to Saudi Arabia. He stopped an aircraft sale to Nigeria because of the serious human rights abuses of their armed forces. So in the midst of selling huge amounts of weaponry, the Obama administration did make a few distinctions of countries they would not sell to. Trump immediately reversed those as soon as he came in. And even after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, which prompted a reconsideration of relations with Saudi Arabia all over the world, he sort of explicitly said, well, you know, I don't want to jeopardize the good business we're doing there for our wonderful companies and selling our wonderful weapons. So he's been more blatant about it. He's sort of shouted it from the rooftops. And he's wanted to claim more credit for it. You know, a lot of presidents have, have done similar things, but they've been quieter about it. They haven't really been uh, proud of being the world's leading arms dealer, at least with respect to sales to some of these particularly dubious uh, destinations.
0: Well, it does seem that, that unlike others in my memory, Trump doesn't mind being seen as a bully. He kind of likes being seen as a bully. That is certainly, I I think... One thing uh, that's somewhat unique about him, uh, at least in my lifetime. And I remember Jimmy Carter at least talking about a human rights threshold for weapons sales. That was a long time ago in many ways. One country that is not getting any of the weapons deals is Iran. Aside from them, does it matter to Trump who buys our weapons systems and how they might be used against whom? As he said, Uh, you know, made any noise whatsoever about human rights being a consideration?
2: Not that I'm aware of. I mean, Iran, Syria, China, Russia, I would say, are the places he probably wouldn't sell. It's hard to imagine anywhere else where he wouldn't consider it. Um, And, you know, they've had some uh, issues with Turkey because Turkey is buying Russian anti-aircraft systems, They want them to buy U.S. systems. They're afraid Russian technicians on the ground will somehow get access to information about U.S. F-35s that Turkey's buying. So there's been a little friction there, but it hasn't really been about human rights. It's been almost about how to maintain U.S. market share, if Uh, nothing else.
0: uh, Market share. What a great—how could you uh, push for peace any more than uh, going for weapons market share? What the heck? that uh, we got a lot of these countries to talk about as we go along. What do we know about human rights? Before we get off that subject, what do we know about the regimes re- receiving our weapons on their records on human rights? Is there a lot of variation among them? I mean, we got Turkey, we got Saudi Arabia. W- what about their record on human rights as is known?
2: Well, I would say the Saudis may be the most severe uh People go to jail for, you know, tweets that are critical of the government. Uh, they still engage in beheadings. Uh, they've killed thousands and thousands of people in Yemen with indiscriminate bombing strikes. They've jailed women activists uh, at the same time that Ham Salman is trying to posture as a reformer. He's talking about letting them drive. The women who actually organized for that are now rotting in, in Saudi prisons. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they, they may be the most serious abuser among uh, the U.S. allies in the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, I would say worse, for example, than uh, Iran. Um, mm-hmm. And then in, in Egypt, you have a, a dictatorship that came to power through a coup that the United States uh, allies like Saudis and UAE facilitated, which the U.S. stood back and basically implicitly supported. Uh and they also—they've got tens of thousands of political prisoners. And they've also been jailing people for, you know, being involved in human rights defense. Uh, they've got a counter-terror war in the northern Sinai, where they've demolished people's houses. They've arrested them without uh, charges. They've engaged in extrajudicial assassinations. Um, they've done indiscriminate bombing that that's killed civilians. So, you know, it's it's sort of like this is not a competition we want our allies to be engaged in who can be the most repressive regime in the region. Uh, but it's a close call, you know, with those two. Um,
0: yeah, amazing. But they have a lot of money. So what the heck? You know, why should that stand in the way? For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Bill Hartung. Uh, Pentagon Specialist, who is a Director of the Arms and Security Program at the Center for International Policy. We're talking about uh, U.S. of Arms, uh, the art of the weapons deal in the age of Trump. And one would have to be living under a rock not to see that America's national security and building good international relations does not ever seem to drive this president. Uh, clearly, Everything he does is for his own political benefit. Your, your article brings up Trump's visit to Saudi Arabia in 2017 in the first year of his office. Of course, the Saudis, like the Chinese and every government in the world knows, uh, they put on grandiose ceremonies and generally boosted Trump's ego. Uh, that's everything to him. He loves that kind of stuff. Of that trip, Trump gloated that the sale of weapons to the Saudis would mean Jobs, jobs, jobs in the United States. He'd be bragged there'd be a half million jobs created. Not that Trump would ever exaggerate, but what was the real number of jobs created? And uh, in what states were those jobs supposed to be? Well, as far as I can estimate, based
2: on the money that's actually flowing at the moment, it's probably 20 to 40,000 jobs uh, versus the 500,000 or more that Trump said. So a 10th or a 20th of what he claimed. Um, And it may be even less than that because some of the new deals involve part of the production being done in Saudi Arabia. They want to produce half the value of anything they buy by 2030. So they're trying to build their own arms industry. U S companies like Boeing and Raytheon are helping Mm them to do it. Um, and the thing about the Trump uh, you know, arms deal was that a lot of it was made out of smoke and mirrors. I don't know if you can build something out of smoke and mirrors. That may be a bad metaphor. But anyway, it was smoke and mirrors. And he, um, you know, he talked about a $110 billion arms deal. Uh, much of that was stuff that had already been cleared Congress under Obama. Much of it were things that would have happened 10 or 15 years away, totally speculative. Uh, the actual deals that he included at the time were about $14 or so. So again, maybe a tenth or so of what he was talking about. But before he went over, there was a meeting with Jared Kushner uh, and some uh, Saudi diplomats where he actually got on the phone, Kushner, with the head of Lockheed Martin and basically said, what do you got for me? You know, we're building this deal. Uh, We want the biggest number possible. And, um, you know, can you give them a good price? on a missile defense system. So they threw in a $15 billion missile defense system into this package based on a personal appeal from Jared Kushner to the CEO of Lockheed Martin. So it it was quite blatant, Um, more so. I mean, part of it is maybe we're learning a little more than we did at some of the past ones, but I've looked pretty closely at the operations of other uh, administrations. And I don't remember anything quite this blatant just in terms of, let's pump up a number for the president to give in a speech in this country so it can claim he's a big jobs creator. And if it happens to be made
0: up of whole cloth, so be it. Yeah. <laughs> I laugh, but it's, it's not funny at all. And I, I guess, you know, it used to be the case that at least uh, Jimmy Carter thought that Americans cared about human rights. I, I you know, there's people want... And the only real... I, I, I think some would argue benefit of, uh, to national security of, of weapon systems is the jobs they create. I happen to think a lot of other jobs, a heck of a lot more jobs could be created other ways, but that's a different story. No, so to, to follow what you said about his deal in 2017, those weapons, as you say, aren't just sitting in warehouses or being displayed in military parades. I know Trump was so disappointed he never got a military parade. What do the people of Yemen know about their use that the vast majority of Americans do not know? Well, you know, as
2: a preface, for many years, the U.S. sold tens of billions of dollars to the Saudis, and they weren't used. It was more of a prestige thing for the Saudis. The real deal was you buy our weapons, We'll come and defend you in a pinch, as they did in the first Gulf War in 1991. Um, so it's you know easy access to your oil. We'll protect you. We have to buy our weapons to defray some of the costs of what we're spending on your oil. So it was almost like a protection racket. Uh, but then they started using them in March 2015 in the war in Yemen, which at that time, uh, Muhammad bin Salman, who's the crown prince now, was the defense minister, it was really his war. They were going to go in there. Uh, they were going to defeat the Houthi rebels who had been firing a few rockets over the border and who the Saudis did not want to take over the government there uh, in in Yemen. Uh, but they immediately started bombing civilian targets. So they hit funerals, marketplaces, weddings, a school bus carrying 40 children, uh, thousands and thousands of civilian deaths. The Saudis using U.S. bombs and U.S. aircraft to do it, uh, and then on top of that, the Saudi coalition, which includes the UAE, imposed a naval blockade that made it hard to get uh, humanitarian aid in. Uh, and they weren't alone. The Houthi also would, would block aid on the land, and they would ask for, you know, payments and bribes to get the stuff moved and so forth. But as a result of that, um, more than a hundred thousand. Uh, Yemenis have died in this war in the last five years. Uh, Millions are on the brink of starvation. They had the biggest cholera outbreak in living memory, which should have been preventable. Mm -hmm. But the Saudis had been um, bombing the water treatment plants so people couldn't get uh, clean water. And now, of course, they're very vulnerable to COVID-19 because a lot of their uh, medical infrastructure and their hospitals have also been destroyed in the war, so it's the UN has called it the world's worst humanitarian catastrophe. It's hard to know, if you look know at what's happened in Syria, how to compare the two. But it, it's certainly uh, those two uh, are by far the uh, most devastating wars, not just in the region but in the world.
0: I do find it curious. I, it, it, I'm trying to figure out why. The Saudis are doing that. It seems like they picture Yemen as a proxy war between the Saudis and their hardcore competitor, in some sense, of Iran. But but Yemen is a a sovereign country, and is it just so they can show off to Iran? I mean, Iran is not. I don't think uh, have have any anywhere near the same. Uh, investment in, in Yemen that the Saudis do. what What is going on? with wh- Why are the Saudis doing that?
2: Well, publicly, they certainly claim it's about Iran. Uh, but as you pointed out, Iran is a minor player in this war. After the Saudis went in, they started supplying some small amounts of weaponry to the Houthi rebels that the Saudis were fighting, uh, but nothing compared to what the U.S. and the U.K. are supplying the Saudi side. Um, and the Saudis have wanted to control Yemen in order to have a sympathetic government on the border mm. uh, for years. And they actually uh, proselytized their version of Islam on, along the border, uh, much to the chagrin of the, the Houthi uh, people who were living in that region and who had a different version of Islam. So that, that was the first provocation. Uh, then uh, the corruption of the regime of the Saleh regime that ruled for 33 years as essentially a dictatorship in Yemen. Uh, when they were overthrown uh, by the Houthi, the Saudis were concerned that if you had a Houthi-run government, you would have a, you know, potentially dangerous or at least uncooperative uh, government on your borders. And so they went all in in favor of Saleh's vice president uh, and tried to bolster him as the ruler uh, of Yemen. So they, basically they injected themselves in this civil war because they wanted a pliable uh, uh-huh. government on their borders. And, um, you know, I think they mu- much overstated uh, what the threat would have been of a coalition government that included the UTI, but nonetheless, that, that, you know, that, that's much more why they did it than anything to do with uh, Iran. And of course, uh, there was the issue of hubris that, yeah. um, uh, Mohammed bin Salman thought this could be concluded in a matter of weeks and now we're on five years uh, so it's kind of akin to some of the US wars where we've been told oh yes we'll go in, we'll clean this up quickly and we'll be out of there mm-hmm. and of course now we are been in Afghanistan for going on 20 years So,
0: yeah there's certainly been no lack of that saying "Ah, the troops will be home by Christmas this will just be uh, a jolly little war Yeeks. Um, but you, you mentioned very briefly that the U.K. is also, you know, they, they do weapons as well. The U.S. is not the only supplier of weapons systems to the Middle East market. Who who are the others? What are their shares, do you think? And do they? does everybody supply the same customers? Well,
2: the, the next biggest supplier is Russia. Uh,
0: but they, the U.S.
2: has about half the market is at about 16%. So the U.S. supplies three times as much weaponry to the region as Russia does. Russia has a much smaller list of clients. Uh, you know, they support uh, the opposition groups in uh, Libya. Uh, they support the Syrian regime in Iran. And they have a piece of the Egyptian market. So they have four places where there are significant suppliers out of the 19 countries in the Middle East and North Africa. U.S. supplies as top supplier to 13 of those 19, about two-thirds. Um, and you've got France. France sells to Egypt and to Qatar, a few other places. Again, a modest number of clients, but you make a few fighter plane deals, it's, it's big money as mm-hmm. they've done with, with Qatar. Okay. Uh, the U.K. is further down the list, and their main client is Saudi Arabia. And the U.S. and the U.K. together supply about or more of the Saudis' uh, imported weaponry. Uh, And there's been a big controversy in the UK, uh, at least as much so as here, about why they're still continuing to supply Uh the Saudi regime. There was a a court case which initially uh, ruled that they had to stop supplying Saudi Arabia because of their own laws and their uh, adherence to the Global Arms Trade Treaty. That was overturned instead of a combination of a technicality and basically a lie you know basically the, the government said well and they got the court to agree with them we don't know whether the saudis are intending to inflict these uh humanitarian casualties therefore we can keep selling so it was uh-huh. it became instead of instead of the reality of what was happening it became this argument of intent and of course i believe it is intentional because you don't kill that many people by mistake and you don't hit that many targets many of which they've actually got a list of targets they're not supposed to bomb, and they've been hitting them repeatedly. Mm. But anyway, so the UK, there's been a big uh, controversy. Um, and then Germany has some places that they supply as the Netherlands, but at a much lower level. And then if you look at things like small arms and drones, there are, you know, it's, it's a more competitive market. China has sold drones to the UAE and to the Libyan opposition, which have been used in those conflicts. But China's overall, uh, percentage of the market in the Middle East is less than 3%. So this notion that China's going to rush in and fill the gap uh-huh. with the U.S. stuff selling to the Saudis, it doesn't really jibe with the reality.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I, the, the So it's pretty much the same sides that get the big weapon systems. I mean, the, the Palestinians, eh, not so much. They get the rocks and small rockets, I guess. But advocates of continuing arms supply to the Middle East and North Africa, insist such sales are, to quote your article, a force for stability and a way to cement alliances, counter Iran, or more generally, a tool for creating a balance of power that makes armed engagement less likely. End of your quote. So would it not be dangerous... If the United States slowed or cut the supply of weapons in this argument, would that not radically upset what may be a fragile balance of power? Your thoughts. Well, I think the first thing is there is
2: no balance at the moment. If you look at war in Libya, war in Syria, war in Iraq, war in Yemen, um, the, the Egyptian counter-terror operations in the northern Sinai, uh, Israel's uh, periodic, uh, you know, devastating attacks on Gaza. Right. Um, so, if you're on the receiving end of these things, you hardly feel that you're in a stable region with a balance of power. Um, the power, there's too much power in the hands of the wrong people, uh, and giving them more weapons will just lead to more war. Um, and it's interesting, but the, the advocates of arms sales cling to these arguments, no matter how out of sync there with reality. So, for example, uh, when they notify Congress of a new arms sale, mm-hmm. the Pentagon has to send them a little letter that says, oh, we're going to sell these tanks and these planes and this and that weapon, let's say, to uh, Saudi Arabia. And then there's a justification, which is usually on a sentence or two. You know, they're not going to use them against U.S. interests, and they've been a force for stability in the region. And they say that regardless of what's going on. <laughs> And even in the midst of the war in Yemen, they've used this argument. So these are kind of um, just these mantras that they use that are kind of detached from reality. And I think they're mostly to justify things that are happening for other reasons. Uh, I mean, I think they do want to arm countries that are, um, you know, adversaries of Iran. uh, But the chances of of any of these countries, you know, going to war with Iran without U.S. approval is pretty unlikely. There were some battles with Israel during the Bush period about whether Israel would start the war and force the U.S. to come in. Um, But the U.S. military, for the most part, does not want to have such a war because they've looked at Iraq. Iran's a bigger country. It would be a bigger disaster were the U.S. to get heavily engaged. Um, So it's a lot of it's about the money. You know, it's about the money and and it's about uh, political support. You know, historically, the Saudis had voted with the U.S. They'd used their money to support non-state groups like the Iran Contras, Mm. uh, like the Mujahideen fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan. So this was sort of a, you know, they were on the same page in terms of who to finance. And that, of course, has changed if you look at the fact that the 15th to the 19th, uh, hijackers uh, involved in the 9 mm-hmm. attacks were from Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. uh, Saudi individuals funding uh, radical Islamic groups around the world, uh, Saudi Arabia supporting, you know, the coup in Egypt, uh, jihadists in Syria. Um, you know, so there's, there's a lot of, even if you accepted kind of the Pentagon's view of what the U.S. interests are, which I certainly don't, right. uh, Saudi Arabia is not aligned with those in many respects anymore. So even that, element, uh, it is not uh, the way it used to
0: be. Well, so long ago, Bob Dylan said, money doesn't talk, it swears. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. I'm pleased that our guest today is Pentagon specialist William D. Hartung, who has uh, written an article in Tom Dispatch, U.S. of Arms, the Art of the Weapons Deal in the Age of Trump. He's co-author of the Mideast Arms Bazaar. Top arms suppliers to the Middle East and North Africa 2015 to 2019. We're talking about uh, arms to uh, the Middle East and North Africa in, uh, under Trump. And we sent arms to the Syrian opposition forces. How well monitored has the supply of Americans' weapons been among the various sides and, and, and factions there do we know you know we we the profits are made the weapons go out there but what what happens to them once they you know get delivered to the say the opposite the Syrian so-called freedom fighters
2: well you know nobody's either nobody knows or nobody's owning up uh but you know the US uh publicly supplied over a quarter of a billion dollars to Syrian opposition groups over the last five years. And of course the CIA supplied much more than that. And many of these weapons have ended up in the hands of ISIS, in the hands of other extremist groups that are fighting in the Syrian war. Um, and there was one attempt at a study uh, done by a group called the uh, conflict Arms research. And they looked in Iraq and Syria kind of the remnants of war, you know, the markings on the ammunition when uh, after ISIS had rolled through and that kind of thing. And large amounts of the weaponry used by ISIS came from uh, captured weapons that had Mm -hmm. been supplied by the United States or its European allies. So um, a lot of it ends up on both sides of the conflict. That happened in Yemen where the Saudi government's arsenals were raided by the Houthis. Then Sali aligned himself with the Houthi and some of his people that we had trained and armed were fighting against the Saudis. The U.S. was arming the Saudis, and also some of the weaponry was leaking into the hands of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, mm. partly through the UAE. So you had this mess where literally every faction in the war had some kind of U.S. weaponry. Uh, same thing happened when Turkey went into northern Syria, where the Syrian opposition had been armed by the United States. And Syria was bombing them with U.S.-supplied aircraft. Um, so, that, you know, I don't think anybody could justify that kind of a mess, but it, it happens more often than uh, one would
0: imagine. Oh, what the heck? It's profitable. Who cares? Um, sorry for the little sarcasm there, but got to be. And the Kurdish forces. The Kurdish forces were some of the best, most effective fighters against ISIS, notably Sir- Kurdish women, actually. But the forces of Erdogan's Turkey are in receipt of a lot of our weapons. And do we know if those weapons, our weapons, are being used against our very important Kurdish allies who helped us uh, defeat ISIS? What about Turkey? Oh, no doubt.
2: No doubt. Because the entire uh, Turkish inventory of combat aircraft, are U.S.-supplied F-16s, About two-thirds of their armored vehicles come from the United States. Uh, So they couldn't wage war without using U.S. weaponry, essentially.
0: And Iran. Trump assassinated Major General Qasem Soleimani, the second most powerful man in Iran, using something, I don't know what this is, an MQ-9 Reaper Hellfire missile, as Soleimani was leaving the Baghdad airport, what what, what is the obsession with Iran? Is the right wing government of Israel dictating this policy? Do you think I I truly don't get it? Can you explain to me and what that is, and to our listeners as well? Well, I think
2: you know certainly the U.S. relationship with Iran, sort of year zero, was the coup that installed the Shah of Iran in the 50s against the democratically elected government of of Mossadegh. Uh, And at that time, it was about oil. Mm -hmm. It was about fear of them nationalizing the oil fields, uh, doing business with the Russians the Soviets at that time. Uh, And so that was the initial kind of U.S. intervention, closely coordinated with the U.K., which some people think may have actually played a leading role. But the United States was, was right in there. Shoulder to shoulder with them oh, yeah. uh, and and so initially it was it was about control of oil uh, then of course, you had the rise of the Khomeini regime in seventy nine and uh, you know radical Islam of the iranian stripe and so they argued that Iran was going to somehow dominate the region. They certainly do have allies there at hezbollah the to a lesser degree Hamas to a much lesser degree, you know they saw some weaponry. The Houthis. So, um, you know, they're a player in the region, sure. but they're not, um, you know, uh, engaging in the kinds of activities, for example, that Saudi Arabia is where they're uh, destroying an entire country. Um, so under Obama, of course, you had the Iran nuclear deal, which right. was negotiated not just by the United States, but by our European allies and Russia and China. Very rare. Uh, example of that kind of cooperation. And that could have been an opening to talk about uh, more of a normalized relationship with Iran. Uh, Obama said near the end, maybe we need a cold peace between Iran and Saudi Arabia where we're not Mm. taking sides because, you know, neither of them is is a budding democracy by any means, Uh, but, but nor should you be stoking that rivalry and and making it more likely that they might go to war or fight out their differences in other countries. Uh, so so I think, you know, initially it was about oil, then it was kind of an anti-Islam, anti-terror kind of over reaction to how much power they might have in the region. And then certainly Israel, especially under Netanyahu has stoked that. And in some cases he's been out front He's actually been pushing harder oh, yeah. for war with Iran than U.S. Uh, administrations have. You know, he did that address to the joint session of Congress, and he did an absurd presentation at the UN where he had like a little diagram about how far Iran was getting that would seem to be made out of magic marker or something. Um, but anyway, so Israel has been a strong proponent of war with Iran. But interestingly, uh, when the nuclear deal was being attacked. Uh, by the Trump administration, Uh, many former Israeli uh, military and intelligence leaders said, this is good for Israel. You know, it's going to prevent them from getting a nuclear weapon. Why would we want to take this thing apart? Um, You know, the the proponents of, of trashing the deal said, well, Iran's getting, you know, if they lift the sanctions, Iran will get more money. They'll use it to support these terror groups in the region. Therefore, Uh, We need a better deal. But there was no better deal to be had. I mean, this was negotiated over many years among a variety of countries. You were never going to get all those countries on board for a new deal. And if you were going to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, that's what the deal was about. And it was doing a good job of that. So um, there's a lot of factors, but certainly Israel is is a significant part of it.
0: So I wonder if this better deal with Iran is sitting on the same Shelf as the uh, better-than-Obamacare uh, deal that has been promised for four years. They're both just allegedly happening. Well, profits are certainly a factor, it seems. You say there are just four companies which dominate the U.S. arms business in the Middle East and North Africa. Who are they? And please share with us what products they deliver to the region. What, what are some of the known effects of their weapons? Sort of a long question, but who are the four? What are they making?
2: This is a great question. It could be the subject of my next book. Um, Well, I think certainly the top four are Boeing, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, and General Dynamics. Uh, Boeing supplies F-15 combat aircraft, which are the primary pillar of the Saudi Air Force. Um, Raytheon and Lockheed Martin make paveway bombs, which are precision-guided munitions, which, you know, precision-guided because it's supposed to be more accurate, but nonetheless has been used to bomb many, many civilian targets uh, in Yemen. Um, And then General Dynamics mostly supplies, well, they make some of the bombs that are being used in Yemen, but they also build uh, M1 tanks, which have been sold to Egypt, Israel, uh, Turkey, and uh, the Saudis, among others, um, and then in Egypt, uh, you know, a lot of the counter-terror activity against civilians has used uh, Apache helicopters, which are built by Boeing. Uh, Lockheed Martin makes the Hellfire missile, which was, as you mentioned, used in the, in the murder of Soleimani. Um, so uh, they've got a lot to answer for, uh, and it's interesting because the uh, New York Times did a recent piece where they talked to people in the State Department who said that they were actually worried if they kept selling to Saudi Arabia, given how they were using the weapons, that they would be subject to charges of war crimes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people in our own State Department were quite aware of how serious this was. The companies, if you ask them, say, well, we just do what the government tells us to do. We're just following U.S. policy. And of course... That's not entirely true because they work overtime to influence U.S. Sure. policy. So it's not just being handed over to them by some omniscient overlord and they have to follow orders. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're in a symbiotic relationship with the Trump administration, other administrations. So, for example, Mark Esper, the Secretary of Defense, was the chief lobbyist for Raytheon. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a guy at the State Department, Charles Faulkner, in their legal department, who repeatedly pushed to um, give the Saudis a clean bill of health about their human rights abuses, so U.S. weapons flows could continue. He also helped engineer an emergency declaration where they tried to end-run Congress for a sale to the Saudis that Congress was going to vote uh, down. And and Mr. Faulkner uh, had also been a lobbyist for Raytheon. And in fact, there was a State Department Inspector General investigation that Congress asked for partly because of the role of Faulkner. You know, was there undue influence on behalf of his former employer to push these arms sales? Uh, And you can go up and down the line. You know, there's been Lockheed Martin officials, number three at the Pentagon, uh, Textron person is the head of of procurement policy at the Pentagon, and up and down the administration. uh, You know, the uh, three secretaries of defense under uh, Trump Uh, Jim Mattis was on the board of General Dynamics. Patrick Shanahan was interim for quite a while, was an executive at Boeing. Uh, And now you've got a secretary of defense who was chief lobbyist for Raytheon. So, uh, you know, three of the four companies that are the key suppliers to the Middle East have had former employees or lobbyists serve as secretary of defense under Donald Trump, which I don't think... It's possible that they will not have influence over policies like that I mean you would have to be naive to think so
0: and uh, the fox must be very happy with his hen house I must say now money you know the, the power of these uh, uh, military industrial uh, con- you know contractors is is very great political power the House of Representatives has been and and is currently in democratic hands they need a lot of campaign money too. Have they pretty much gone along just as well? I'm getting the sense that they have. What's your sense?
2: Well, the one place where there's been some important action is on uh, South to Saudi Arabia. So right. uh, led by Ro Khanna, who's a oh, yes. member from California. Great guy. Uh, and eventually bringing along even people like Adam Smith, the, the chair of armed services, uh the House voted several times to block bombs to Saudi Arabia, as did the Senate, led by Bernie Sanders and Mike Lee, who's actually a Tea Party from Utah, but oh, yeah. who happens to believe... He believes that the Constitution includes the notion that Congress should control whether we go to war or not. So he's he's one of the few conservatives who seem to have read the entire Constitution. Um, a genuine conservative, picking, yes.
0: Go ahead. Yeah, yeah.
2: And so, so anyway, so they had voters in, in both houses to block these deals, uh, which were vetoed by Trump. So as a result of the work of a lot of organizations, um, groups like Human Rights Watch and Action Corps and Win Without War. Uh-huh. I'm going to forget them all, but the Friends Committee on National Legislation. Okay. Um, there was a big push uh, to get Congress to pay attention to this, given the severe consequences. And, and some members rose to the occasion. Now, in other parts of the region, you don't see that same kind of congressional
1: mm-hmm. uh,
2: action. And I would hope to see more of that, especially in places like Egypt. Uh, but it's, it's hard to get that to happen. Congress is kind of outmatched politically on these things because of the presidential veto power. And one proposal that has been made is, uh, for the most controversial deals, it should require an affirmative positive vote of the Congress. So if Congress doesn't say yes, the sale doesn't happen. Mm. So it circumvents the notion of a veto. And um, so that's been pushed by a lot of human rights and arms control groups. And uh, we need to see who would carry that uh, bill in, in the House and Senate. But it's, you know, we're, we're trying to think of ways to give Congress a stronger hand so that the administration can't be the uh, less word on these sales all the time.
0: Uh, it wouldn't be nice The Constitution is pretty clear on going to war, and they've slipped around there quite a bit. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Live. Our guest is Pentagon Specialist William Hartung. We're talking about the U.S. of arms, the art of the weapons deal in the age of Trump in the Middle East and Northern Africa. Now, interesting, when, when Congress did vote down the bomb sale to Saudi Arabia, the president vetoed the measure, declaring it an emergency Uh, And you write that at the behest of Congress, the State Department's Office of Inspector General then opened an investigation into the circumstances surrounding that declaration of an emergency. That's an interesting story. Share that with us, please. Well, uh, you know, it wasn't an emergency. I mean, they they
2: tried to say, well, you know, Iran might strike at any moment, and therefore we have to shovel these weapons to these countries— First of all, UAE and Saudi Arabia have arsenals far superior to what Iran has, if you're talking about planes and tanks and um, you know pretty much a whole array of combat equipment. Uh, so the notion that they needed this new infusion to fight Iran made no sense. Now, what it did have in that package was more bombs, and the Saudis needed more bombs to prosecute the war in Yemen. That's what it was really about, but they didn't want to say that. Um, and also, some of the things they were selling to the Saudis outside of the bombs were going to take many years to deliver. So the notion that, oh, yeah, it's an emergency, let's sell them something that they'll get three years from now was was not um, credible. Uh, so Elliot Engel, the head, who was then head of House Foreign Affairs, asked for an investigation of you know, how could they justify this emergency declaration? And the inspector general in charge of that, a guy named Steve Linick, uh, seemed to be coming to the conclusion that it was improper and that perhaps it, that impropriety uh, reached to the top levels of the State Department. So Mike Pompeo fired them, uh, And then they brought another person in. That person was fired. Finally, they came out with the report and they said, well, we find no wrongdoing on the part of... State Department of the Administration. However, there was a little uh, tag-on, which was interesting, in which they said, uh, however, we don't believe that the State Department has been, or the administration as a whole, has been uh, taking care to see that the Saudis are not abusing human rights and their use of U.S. weapons. So even in this kind of whitewashed report, there was that kind of damning section. Uh, they also said that the Saudis had gotten about ten billion dollars in weaponry and spare parts that had been uh, snuck under the radar and and not reported to Congress. Uh, and the way they did that was there's a there's a dollar threshold at which congressional notification kicks in. So they just said, "All right, well we'll we'll carve it up into these smaller packages, all of which fit mm-hmm. below that threshold, oh and then we can just sell the stuff. Nobody'll know the better." Uh, and this was during a quite hot period of the war, so Congress had no ability to provide oversight because they weren't aware that these deals were happening.
0: Uh, as Bob Dylan said, money doesn't talk, it swears. Well, Joe Biden, he is running for president. I don't think he's as hawkish as Hillary Clinton was. What I, what kind of foreign and military policy might we expect If Joe Biden wins, do you think there might be a change of policy regarding the Saudi onslaught of Yemen and and these weapons deals that we're talking about? What do you think about Joe Biden and his policies? Well, the Biden campaign and
2: Biden himself have said they would stop us to Saudi Arabia over the Yemen issue uh, if he were to be elected. Uh, He's also said he would try to reengage with Iran and revive Mm -hmm. the uh, nuclear deal. Uh, he said that he wants to have, uh, extend the New START agreement, the nuclear arms agreement with Russia, and have further discussions about arms control with Russia. So there's there's some areas where there would be clear differences. He talks about ending the forever wars, but then he, his version of that includes uh, counter-terror operations that might involve drone strikes, special forces. So that's not dramatically different from what's happening now. So uh-huh. So that would be an area where um, there'd be some work to do, you know? But but I think there are a, a number of, of key areas. There's also a, there was a sentence in the democratic platform that said, uh, essentially we can defend the country for less, spending less on the Pentagon. And there's gonna be a debate whether, you know, how much less, $5 less, hundred no. billion less, you know, there's, there's, the definition of less will be up for grabs. Um, But uh, anyway, so there's there's some promising elements there that are not present currently, Um, but any administration when they come in is Uh under immense pressure, including from uh, these lobbies that we've been discussing. So uh, even even the uh, positive elements would be subject to, uh, you know, political tussle.
0: There always has to be pressure. People forget that, but there always has to be pressure from the people in the streets. And if Biden wins, it's going to have to be a lot of pressure. So just again, if not for the U.S. supplying weapons, would, that, would the region not further destabilize? Uh, no. I mean,
2: the weapons are mostly backing up some of the most repressive regimes in the region. Those regimes... I think are making the situation worse. both, Mm -hmm. you know, worse, you know, first of all, because the impacts on their own people, people in neighboring countries, but also they're not creating any alternative political space. So there's been a lot of pushback, a lot of recruitment by uh, terrorist organizations based on the fact that people have no redress. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, they have no way to, to push back in a in a nonviolent political way against these regimes. So I think were you to pull back, were you to put conditions on these sales, uh, were you to play more of a diplomatic role in the region while respecting the right of the people in the region to take the lead, not imposing mm. deals on them. Uh, I think you could you could come out with a more stable situation ultimately.
0: Boy, I sure hope so. If people are this, thank you so much for being with us today. This is very, very uh, informational. If people are interested in following your work, uh, Tom Dispatch, is there something else you can point people to?
2: Uh, well, they, there's a page of pretty much everything that I work on at um, uh Center for International Policy's website, internationalpolicy.org. Uh-huh. Oh, good. I also do an occasional column for Forbes. Uh, and which I don't know why they are letting me do this, but I'm <laughs> glad they are. And um, take the money. And so if you if you just Google William Hartung Forbes, those columns will come up as well.
0: Thank you so much. Very very interesting. And uh, maybe we can have a change. It's possible. People got to push. Thanks so much, Bill Hartung, for being with us on keeping democracy alive.
2: Yes. Well, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.